you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. do when we come to the portion of our worship service, where our singular focus is on your word. We ask, Lord, that you would be gracious towards us, that you would enable us, Father, to focus on your word and what is read and what is being said. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have understanding of what is going on, what is being communicated. We ask, Lord, that you would help us in being able to um, allow your word, to have your word, to shape the way that we think, the way we think about you, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about life. Father, we desire to be greatly influenced by your word, that, Father, we may live in wisdom. We are grateful, Father, that you preserved your word for us. We know, Lord, from your word that you are with us, that you will never leave us, never forsake us. We know, Lord, that your spirit works in conjunction with your word in our hearts and lives. And again, we desire that to happen. That, Father, we might be encouraged and strengthened, and that our faith may grow. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 4, once again, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So last week, as we began to work our way through these temptations, we ended with the one where he is basically told to throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple. The main idea with that was that he would be proving, in a sense, that he was the Son of God. And so the devil has distorted the Word of God, and so Jesus correctly interprets the psalm that the devil has quoted with Deuteronomy 6.16, and says that you should not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at, at Massa. And that refers to the story in Exodus 17. And as we ended with that last week, uh, we saw that Israel was exercising what we would call superficial faith. And we want to make sure that the faith that we have in God is not a faith that only trusts him when he provides a miraculous rescue. Uh, that we don't have a superficial kind of faith, but that our faith is rooted and grounded in the character of who he is and what the word of God says. When it comes to the last temptation that Matthew records, it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. How about you? But the first question that comes to my mind is, okay, how? How did this happen? 
How did Satan show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? What mountain around there was tall enough that he could do this? Because there, there, there is no mountain that tall around that area. But Luke helps us with this. Luke gives us a detail that is not given there in the Matthew account, and that's Luke 4, 5, where it reads, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And so with that phrase, in a moment of time, what many believe, and I believe is correct, is that this was some kind of a visionary experience that Satan showed him. He may have taken him on a mountain, but he showed him really in a vision all the kingdoms of the world and basically said that if you can have all of these, I will give you authority all of these if you would just bow and worship me. Also, the kingdoms of the world will belong to Jesus after his, rec after his resurrection and exaltation anyway when the Father grants Jesus all authority in heaven and earth. So what's going on here with all of this? Well, again, remember, one, more, one facet of this that we have to deal with is some individuals have said, well, wait a minute, this whole thing is kind of a farce because Satan really doesn't have the right to offer these kingdoms to Jesus. They don't belong to him. Well, what does the Bible say? You read John chapter 12, verse 31, Satan is called the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul refers to Satan as being the God of this world. So basically what happened was this. God gave Adam command or charge over the earth. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned, they lost that and it was basically taken away by Satan. God is still sovereign and in the same way everything that takes place, whether man is doing it or Satan is doing, is done by the permission of God himself. But who is it that has dominion over the world at this time? Well, it is Satan. It, one day, we will see everything placed under the feet of Jesus, but that is not yet. So Satan did have the right or the authority to offer this to Jesus. So there was a very real uh, temptation, you could say. It was, it was rooted, I believe, in reality. And so then this offer from Satan to Jesus, offering him ownership and rule of the entire world in exchange for worship, was a genuine temptation. And basically what this temptation, what gave it, I guess you would say, weight, is Satan could hand over the keys to Jesus in exchange for being worshipped by the Son. And so you end up having this, which was penned by, I think, a, a pastor in the 1700s. And he said, this is what's going on. Satan, what Satan is doing is he's offering a shortcut to kingship for Jesus. It would be a crown without a cross, sovereignty without the suffering, and authority without the agony. I wouldn't be smart enough to come up with all that, you know, each word beginning with a C or an S or an A. Uh, but that's what was going on. And so it's basically a shortcut. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to go through all that suffering. Just bow and worship me and I'll give you all of this and you will be, you will be king. All of these I'll give you if you fall down. So based on the response of Jesus, which is in verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. This worship that Satan is asking for involved more than just a submission to Satan's authority. It, it's something that would have included adoration. Um, it would have been a, a, an act of worship, adoration, submission, which is all reserved for God and God alone. In other words, this is worship in the highest sense. So Jesus here exercises his authority over Satan with a very simple command that was immediately obeyed, be gone or go away. 
which is kind of interesting. He just basically just says the word. Basically, just go away. And Satan immediately obeys. He, because he has no choice. He must do that. Because Jesus has very real authority over him. So, I guess the question is, is so why was Jesus tempted? What, what's the point of all of this? Is, this? is all of this really necessary? Well, everything that happened in the life of Jesus is necessary. There's purpose in everything that he does and in everything that he says. Even purpose, I believe, in things that he doesn't say or the way he says things. Because he's, he is seeking to teach us the truth. He is correcting error that the Jewish people have believed based on some of their faulty theology. And also there's this ongoing example of Jesus. And then Jesus is also revealing to us the Father. So all these things are kind of wrapped up in his, in his life and everything he's doing. So we need to pay attention to everything that's going on. So there's several things to note when it comes to this temptation of Jesus here uh, at the beginning of his ministry. Number one, it does show that Jesus is the Messiah and he will overpower the forces of evil. Remember, that's at the crux of all of this. Remember, we all know that the main reason Jesus came was to die. Why is that the main reason? It's because of the issue of sin. Sin is it's just in the way. It's what separates man from God. All of these things that God has promised that he would give to man, the, the promise of peace, the promise of serenity, this, the, the, the world that's described and what it's going to be like in the future, all of that is going to come to fruition, but cannot come to fruition until the main issue is dealt with, and that is the ugliness and the horribleness and the strength of sin that separates us from God. God is a God who is just. He is loving, kind, and gracious, and all of those things. But he must deal with sin. He must. If God doesn't deal with sin, he then is unjust. He then is evil. And God is not evil. God is righteous in every way. God is holy in every way. He will leave no stone unturned. He's not going to turn a blind eye to anything. Everything and everyone's going to be called into account. No one, nothing gets away with anything. Everything is going to be dealt with. There's going to be perfect justice as well as perfect peace. And to have that, you have to have an all-knowing, all-powerful judge who ensures that no one gets away with anything. And that's, that's who God is. And so here, when he sends Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, he is coming to confront sin, to deal with sin, and to overpower the forces of sin. Remember that sin is very powerful. You know this. How successful have you been resisting sin on your own? Well, so far, none of you have been able to do that. And I've never been able to do that. And we started giving in to the sin impulse when we were infants. We would get mad about things. You don't get your way, whatever it happens to be. You know, I don't know, if, I don't think it's true of any of us. None of us were taught by our parents how to say no. That just came automatically. I don't think our parents taught us to have an attitude. And we got that early on. Even we sometimes notice that in certain kids. You know, all kids have an attitude. And every now and then you look, you go, well, they got an attitude. But where'd that come from? Well, it came from inside uh, of them. They have a dark heart. And we all have that. So this is a very real thing that must be dealt with. The world hates that, by the way. Remember, in general, the world wants to believe that we're all basically good. And that's just not true. If you really want to go down a dark path, 
just start reading about the crime throughout the world. Right, not just crime in our country. The crime in our country, though it can be bad, it's really whitewashed compared to some of the things that go on on a regular basis in other countries. I'm not saying that because we're somehow better than others. We've, there's just a greater influence of the Bible in our history. But when you look to see what's going on, the kind of injustice that takes place on a regular basis and the lack of justice, the, the number of innocent individuals who suffer immensely at the hands of just evil people, it, it is, it's overwhelming. And it needs to be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And sin and evil are powerful. And here the Messiah is able to overpower the forces of evil. We also see that when confronted with Satan, we can see that as Jesus struggling in a sense with himself and overcoming the inherent weakness of the flesh. So when I say that Jesus is struggling with himself, I am not indicating or hinting that somehow Jesus is struggling because he's going to give in to sin. That, that's not where the struggle is. He is still a human being. There is a weakness. When he was tempted to turn the stone into bread, that was a very real temptation. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He was hungry. Really hungry. I, we, I, you know, I guess it's portrayed in movies. We don't always really see individuals who are absolutely famished. But if you ever see an, uh, on video an individual who has not eaten for several days, you know, someone's been rescued from, you know, they were in a cave or wherever, and they haven't eaten for several days, and they're given food, then the person normally doesn't take the food and then unwrap it and place it on a napkin and cut it up. It's, it's in the mouth. Sometimes the wrapper goes with it. I mean, they just, they, 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 they want it now. All right, they're, they, and so they're just, because that's all they can think about. They just want to eat. I remember reading this once, um, it's far enough away from lunch. There was a guy who was a, a pastor uh, who was in, uh, this was back when the Soviet Union was kind of intact. And he was a, a, a pastor that was in jail because he was a Christian. This was in Romania. And he was going, there was a lot of suffering, a lot of torture that took place, and he, they weren't given much to eat. And he said he recognized how great his hunger was because on one particular afternoon, there was a large roach that was walking across um, the floor of his cell, and his first thought was dinner. And he says he wasn't repulsed by that. He said it looked delicious. Not about you. Now, I know this is a weird thing. I have eaten a roach before, but I did it for money. And I was a, teen I was, I was a teenager, all right? <laughs> but just in case you were wondering, it's not yummy. <laughs> All right, so I've never been that hungry, and hopefully you've never been that hungry. But we need to recognize that the temptation that Jesus experienced was a very real temptation. We don't want to diminish it and just kind of somehow imagine it wasn't that big of a deal because it's like he's playing a part in a movie. That's not what he was doing. He was experiencing the weakness of the flesh. Remember, he still had to sleep at night. He still sweated. He still had to eat. He still had to do all those things and take care of the human body the way the human body must be taken care of or he wouldn't make it. And also what we see here is that there's a struggle that sets up really a model for the Christian because we must struggle with temptation and overcome it. Christ is our example. And so he overcame very real temptation. We are to overcome very real temptation. And we'll talk more about that at the end 
some of the specifics of that that, I, that, that we need to recognize uh, and think about to help us in that endeavor. And of course, the aim, God's aim is in this, all of this is to prove the sinlessness of the Messiah. Remember, he's come to be our substitute. He has to be sinless. If he commits even one sin, he must die for his own sin. So he has to be sinless. And this proves to us his sinlessness. And of course, the Satan's aim was to cause the Messiah to sin. Now keep in mind what we mentioned last week when it came to the baptism of Jesus. We talked about that, when, that part of baptism, what it means is you are identifying with a group, with a person, with a message, or with all of the above. And we know that when it came to Jesus, that, that part of what was happening is, is he was identifying as a Jew with Israel, and he was also identifying with us. So I'm going to do a quick review of how he identified with Israel. We actually cover most of this, uh, but, so we'll go through it rather rapidly, and then we'll get to the idea where he kind of identifies with us and what that means for us as believers. So again, as representing Israel, Jesus was addressed as the Son of God. Remember, we looked this up. And we saw that it relates to him being God, to him being part of God's chosen people. Israel as a nation was called the Son of God in Exodus and Hosea. We then looked at Matthew 2.15 when calling Jesus the Son of God. Matthew was citing the passage from Hosea. So that phrasing there was, is not just a phrase that just identifies Jesus as the Son of God. It was a phrase that was used of the nation of people, uh, of the people of Israel. God viewed them and talked about his relationship with them and his love for them as one cares for their son. And so they're called the son of God to emphasize that. And so there's that relationship there or that identity with Jesus, with Israel in that way. The temptation of Jesus, as we mentioned last week, took place in the wilderness, just as Israel was tested in the wilderness, which leads to the third thing, which is the use of the figure 40. And, you know, we easily identify uh, the number 40 and its significance and its importance. Now, remember, when it comes to numbers in the Bible, don't become superstitious. You know, we're not teaching a kind of numerology. Uh, there is one book, which I won't mention, but it says, everything significant that happens in the Bible happens around the number 40. That's a slight exaggeration. Jesus was in the grave for three days, not 40. That's pretty significant. Amen. So, no, 40 is not a number that's used for every significant thing. Now, there are significant things that do take place, absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with us recognizing that 40 is important in that way. But don't go out there thinking it's going to help you win the lottery. Right? Just so you know, there are people getting all that kind of stuff. In both cases, though, and this is what we mentioned last week in the beginning, which we want to make sure we make note of, we don't forget, and that is that when it came to the temptations of Jesus, it says clearly in Matthew, he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So we need to recognize that. So temptation, God does not tempt us with evil. But God will lead us at times to be in a situation where we will be tempted. There can be many reasons for that. One of the main reasons we saw with the temptation of Jesus was simply this. Jesus, I mean, God desired Jesus' victory over sin and Satan to be on display. Well, you can't do that if he doesn't go and get tempted. So there will be times that God will lead you and I to a position where we will be tempted. As we then, hopefully, overcome that temptation, that brings glory to God 
and may be used in the lives of others to glorify God and to help them. So we want to kind of sometimes back up from maybe what, as we evaluate what's happening in our life and before we start feeling sorry for ourselves because life is difficult and recognize it's more than just about us that life, life is all about. And it is about others. And there are times that, yes, God desires us to go through times of great difficulty for his glory. So he then can, maybe God wants you to go through difficulty so you can see him answer prayer in an amazing way. And that's encouraging to your heart. Also, at the same time, it would be encouraging to others because they recognize the situation and they see how God has met your need. And that's, that's important. I think I, I shared with you many times before that when Ch uh, Chuck Colson, um, you know, he started, started this jail ministry after the whole Watergate thing and after he did his prison time, and he was uh, uh, very much a speaker in great demand throughout the United States as he was raising funds for this ministry that he had developed and, and what he was trying to do in the prisons. And at this one juncture, after he'd been doing this for several years, uh, he began to have trouble. And so he went to the doctor, and the doctor said that he had cancer. And I don't know, I can't remember if it was in his throat or his tongue, but it was in that, in that region. The doctor said he had cancer and um, told him that he would have to stop and not speak for the next six months. And Chuck was really up. He was angry about that. He says, you don't understand. I cannot do that. Um, and explained all the reasons why. And um, just, you know, it was, and it was... As he went on for a while, his doctor was a Christian as well, and he said, Chuck, he said, just stop. He said, let me just give you my simple philosophy of life, and you can do whatever you want with it. And he said this. He said, I'm convinced that for every non-believer who gets cancer, God allows a Christian to get cancer so the world can see the difference. And then basically said, stop feeling sorry for yourself and stop talking for the next six months. And, of course, Chuck complied. And he ended up being fine. After the six months, everything went well, and he was able to start and speak again and kind of move on. So we need to, we need to make sure we recognize that. Now, it is true, also at the same time, that when we are tempted, you are drawn away by your own lust. That's what's in the book of James. It's very clear. But along with that, remember 1 Corinthians 10, which says, you will never, never be in a situation where the temptation to sin will be so overwhelming, you have to give in. That, way, that can't happen to you. If you're a Christian, that cannot happen. It can feel overwhelming. You can feel like you have to give in, but your feeling is a lie. God is guaranteed that you will not be in a situation where you have to get, give in. And not only that, he will, will provide a way of escape. He will do that. Which proves to us, at least, if you just think about it, that God is involved in your life in a sovereign way every day. That, to me, that's, just, that's a wonderful thing. It's also very, um, it brings up a lot of guilt. Because at the same time, I'm, you know, you, you want to you excuse what you're thinking of doing or excuse what you've done, and you really don't have an excuse. Because God's already promised you didn't have to do that. And so that, once again, makes us only 100% responsible for our sin which is where it's always been. But God is gracious and God is good. So again, as in both cases, the Holy Spirit was not only, not only did the Holy Spirit lead him to the wilderness, but the Holy Spirit was present. Let me read to you from the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. And I'll begin reading in verse 7. And this is about Israel's wilderness wanderings. And listen to what it says. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, 
and the great goodness of the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. And in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths, like a horse in the desert they did not stumble, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you lead your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So in there, when you read through this recounting of God's goodness and also his presence with them in the wilderness when they rebelled, it's the Holy Spirit is with them. God's presence is with them the whole time. And so, again, when Jesus is facing the temptation of the devil, the Holy Spirit led him there and is with him the whole time that takes place. The Holy Spirit indwells and lives in each one of us. When you and I are tempted, the Holy Spirit has not left. He is there. And he will grant us the strength, the grace that we need to deal with whatever is going on. As noted, the fifth thing is that Jesus responded to each temptation by citing the book of Deuteronomy, which... To Israel, this was their name for the book of Deuteronomy. They refer to the book of Deuteronomy as God's covenant book with the people of Israel. And so Jesus quoted from chapters 6, 7, and 8 in each of these temptations because he identified himself with Israel. The point is this. Israel as a nation had failed. Jesus, as the ideal Israelite, Jesus the Messiah, succeeded. And the same way he did it for them, he is also an example for us. Jesus the Messiah represents the believer. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In fact, we would say this, that this temptation that Jesus has gone through enables him to sympathize with our weakness and is the foundation of the confidence that we have to draw near to God. In other words, we know that Jesus truly understands. He was tempted. He recognizes the weakness of the flesh. He knows how hard it is for us. Now, this is not a way where we have an excuse for our sin, but he understands the genuine difficulty we have, especially at times, with certain temptations. He clearly understands that. He is for us. He is going to be there for us. We can call on him to help us in our time of need. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In every way, Jesus was tempted like us. In this way, temptation, as I mentioned before, to turn the stones and the bread after fasting 40 days. The body was crying out for food. That's the lust of the flesh. 
Right, so his body was literally lusting for food. But remember his obedience to God to wait on the Lord to end the fast that God had called. He was going to trust in him and not use his power in that way. Secondly, the temptation to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple to prove he was the son of God is the pride of life. Remember, Satan said, if you really are the son of God, do this. And it is believed by many that the place that he, that he was placed on was above this large uh, area where people would have gathered. And so if he had thrown himself off and the angels caught him, everybody would have immediately seen and said, oh, this guy must be special. This guy must be the Messiah. Look at just what happened. He didn't go splat on the pavement below. Just, and that's a very real temptation, pride of life. It's probably true for everybody, but I know it's especially true for men. Pride is one of those things you never quite have a handle on that. You're squashing that for the rest of your life. Because to feed the ego is, oh, we want to eat at that table. We want to be great. We want to be the hero. We want to be the smart one or the smartest one. We want to be the one everyone turns to. We, we never want to admit we're wrong. You know, that, that all those things are tied into, you know, the pride of life. We want to be viewed in a certain way. You know, we want to be respected in a certain way. We have in our mind this idea of, of what others or how others should think about us. And, and we want that. And, and it, it causes a problem. And so here, there's this temptation for Jesus to prove himself in this way. Remember that when Jesus was walking around, and this, this I mean, it's hard to imagine this. God, the creator of the universe, is walking around on this planet in the flesh. And people are disrespectful. People would treat him as a nobody. They, 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 they talk about him as if he's a liar and all the rest. And he is in, embodied in this man is all of the intelligence of the universe. I don't know about you. I would have taken more than one opportunity to put them in their place. I mean, how hard would that temptation be to keep things in check because of what your purpose is? It's hard. It's very difficult. And then, of course, when he showed all the kings of the world and told he could have them by simply worshiping Satan, that would be the lust of the eyes. We must never test God's promises that it's true. We must simply believe that he will fulfill them in due time. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And Jesus, here, is an example of resisting the devil. Now, with this, let me just kind of throw this out there. This is important. This story is not a promise that you and I are always going to conquer temptation if we just know the right Bible verse by heart. Right? That's not what that means. Now, this is the way to resist the devil, absolutely. There, we need to have a familiarity with the Word of God, which is not just having certain verses memorized, it's knowing what it says, having an understanding of the Word of God. Remember that the wilderness temptations of Jesus obviously were unique to Jesus as the Son of God, and the victory that he experienced is unique as well. Jesus, again, taught his disciples to ask God to not lead them in the temptation. Why? Because we know we are prone to fail where Jesus succeeded. And we should pray that. Lord, please, I ask that you will not allow me to be in a situation where I am tempted. I know the promise that he's promised that I'll never uh, be tempted beyond my ability to resist. But that doesn't mean I'm going to resist, does it? 
It doesn't mean that. We have all heard stories of incredibly gifted men who have fallen in unbelievable sin. There was one recently, a world-renowned apologist, that when it came out, the things he was doing, it was just hard to fathom, hard to wrap your mind around this man. I heard, I went to his seminars, I heard what he said in person. He seemed so humble and godly. And that there was just no, I mean, if this guy was going to be guilty of anything, it might be a little bit of pride. Man, it was a bunch of stuff. In fact, it was all of this. Pride of life, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And this guy had just given in to all of it, it seemed, with all of his heart. It's unbelievable. And so we, we, we should pray this. We should ask God for this. It's a way of depending upon God being conscious of who he is and his leading and how he wants us to live. Again, as I mentioned, this is, though, an example for how us to, for how we are to resist Satan. You don't have to go looking for Satan to try and fight Satan. Just resist Satan. We resist Satan by, by using the word of God. It's not our will. It's not our own gumption. It's not by our flesh. It's by relying on and believing in the truth of the word of God and taking God at his word. And so one of the things that that we do here, that a lot of churches do, is uh, the, the pastoral staff believes what the Bible says and knows that the flesh is weak. So there are windows in the doors and there are other people present when you counsel women because we're just not going to go there. I don't know about you, I don't want to find out how strong I am. I don't even want to go there. Let's just set it up so there's no way I can get away with it. And that's, that's that we, we want to do that. We want to do that with our lives as individual believers, regardless of our profession or what it is that we're doing. You begin with a very simple, basic message. Bob, you can't trust yourself. Amen. And you say the same thing about yourself. And life will go a whole lot better uh, with that. But here's one thing I want to make sure that when we, we're closing now, I want to make sure that we don't forget. And it is another little phrase that's added by Luke. And I think it's important. It's in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. And it says this. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I'm going to reread that in the Amplified, because the Amplified in this passage does exactly what it's supposed to do, which is to amplify what is being said. And it reads this way. And when the devil had ended every temptation, or the complete cycle of temptation, he temporarily left him. That is, he stood off from him until another more opportune and favorable time. When you and I defeat temptation, and you're feeling good that you've defeated temptation, and there's nothing wrong with feeling good that you've defeated temptation, the devil doesn't go into hiding. He just moves away from you, and it says he is waiting for an opportune or a favorable time meaning favorable where the odds are in his favor of getting you to fail. He's going to wait until you don't feel good. He's going to wait until you don't get enough sleep. He's going to wait until you're a little sick. He's going to wait until your boss starts giving you a hard time. He's going to wait until your wife starts to nag you or the husband starts to nag you or whatever. He's going to wait until you just, your energy is low. He's going to wait until those times. 
He's going to wait until all these things begin to pile up and you do go to your favorite restaurant just to relax and they don't even bring you the right order and what they brought you was undercooked and it's just not a good day. That's when he's going to come in and he's going to tempt you. He's going to tempt you when you're at home and there's no one else around and the blinds are shut. That's when he's going to tempt you. And so what we need to recognize here is that that if this is what the devil's doing with Jesus, what do you think he's doing with you and me? And so in the same way that it may have been a surprise to hear that the Holy Spirit was one who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, sometimes it can be a surprise when we hear that when the devil leaves, he leaves only for a little while. And he's waiting. This is how he's waiting. There's a word that's used in the book of Genesis. When God is talking to Cain, and, and Cain's basically, he's, Cain's upset with God. Cain's brought his offering, and God has rejected it. And Cain is, he's upset. And God says to him that sin is waiting at the door for you. And in the Hebrew language, the picture that's drawn is waiting in this sense, waiting to pounce in the same way that a lion is waiting for a zebra. If you ever watched any of those nature shows, and of course now you can actually, they, they no longer even blur that out. You know, if you want to see how a lion or a large cat-like animal attacks a zebra or whatever, you'll notice that be, when they're stalking, they don't attack the herd. They're waiting for the straggler. They're waiting for the one who's not paying attention. They're waiting for the one who's young, or the one who's a little sick. And then they go after them. When they pounce on them, normally, the way I've heard it described, is that, the, that a lion, if he, when he's in full gait and he's able to pounce on the back of a zebra, that force is so great that often that it immediately breaks the back of the zebra. And now the zebra is paralyzed from that spot down. He's not getting away. What's even more grotesque and painful to think about is when the lion begins to eat the zebra he doesn't wait till the zebra's dead he starts in right away that is how the devil is waiting for us he is waiting to pounce waiting when you and I aren't paying attention when we're weak in whatever way that is and when he pounces, he's not coming like the little kitty cat that's climbing up the curtain He's coming like that lion, and he's coming to break your back and paralyze you and then begin to devour you. We should overcome because the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is in us, and we have been warned, and God has given us what we need to overcome. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us each other as a church to pray for each other, to pray with each other, to support each other, to strengthen each other, to overcome and we need to continue to overcome until he returns let's pray father we thank you again for revealing to us the story of the temptation of jesus i pray father you would help us again to be reminded that this was not just some event in the life of jesus where jesus was playing the part in a movie but that there was a very real struggle that took place and the temptations that came at jesus from satan himself were very real and very powerful and very strong. Father, we see here that Jesus was simply relying on you, relying on the Spirit 
waiting for you to fulfill your promises and not using the power that he had on his own, but to trust you. Help us, Father, to trust you in that way, to live in compliance to what the Word of God says. Father, I pray for each one out here, each one, Father, who is simply seeking to live a life to just obey what they know that the Word of God says and just to rely on you to get through each day and each week. How I pray, Lord, that you would bless their life, that you would be gracious to them, and you will give them strength, and you will help them overcome, and that you will deliver them from temptation. And Father, for those who may have a little bit of arrogance in them, who think that they are strong enough on their own, and so they don't need to pray each day, they don't really need to think about the word each day, they don't really need Christian fellowship as maybe others do. I pray, Lord, in your kindness, but in your firmness, you reveal to them, Lord, the great need that they have to depend upon you and your spirit. Father, for those who may have fallen this week, they've given in, and they have really messed up. I pray, Lord, they would recognize that because of Christ, there is forgiveness, and that if we come to you and we confess our sin, as it says in 1 John, you are faithful. And you will forgive us of our sin. And you will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I pray, Lord, that they will come to you in repentance. And that you will heal them. And you will help them to overcome. And Father, for those who do not know Christ, Father, we pray that they would feel the weight of their sin. That they would feel the ugliness of sin. The strength of it that they will feel their powerlessness, that they will recognize, Lord, that there is nothing they can do to resist, that, Lord, that they have already given in and they're being devoured by Satan himself. And I pray they would see that, they would understand that, and they would come to you and throw themselves at your feet, asking for you to forgive them and to save them, believing with all their heart that you indeed will do that. And we know, Lord, that you will. For that, we thank you. So, Father, we ask now that as we bring our time to a close, that you will burn these thoughts deep into our hearts and minds, helping us, Father, to overcome the evil one and to live for your glory. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.